The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Okay, let's go ahead and look at Matthew chapter 1. It is the Christmas season, Christmas coming up this week, and it is, as you all know, that rare opportunity that true believers have, Christians, really an open door, at least in our culture, to take advantage of that, of talking to people about Christmas and the meaning of Christmas. Hopefully you're doing that, being a faithful steward, whether it's little cards you're sending to family and friends at this time of the season or maybe when the uh, bank teller greets you and either says nothing or have a nice day or happy holidays. And then you say, Merry Christmas, Jesus is King. (laughs) It's always an option. So we get to talk about the meaning of Christmas and... um, we thank God for His Word, the Scripture, because it tells us the true meaning of Christmas. Christmas is, of course, all about Christ, Jesus Christ. And Scripture is crystal clear about who Jesus is. That's what I want to do today uh, in the sermon, is simply just the birth of Jesus or the birth of Christ. And really what I want to emphasize from Matthew's perspective and other key Scriptures is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That sounds like a simple question. And you might be thinking, oh, I know the answer to that. But most of the world doesn't know. They may think they know who Jesus is, but most people are confused. They don't have a biblical understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And so Scripture sets the record straight for us. So we want to look to Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 25, answering the question, who is Jesus, because Matthew tells us very clearly who Jesus is. If you're looking at Matthew chapter 1, first thing you might notice is the first 16 verses. Oh, no, there's one of those scary genealogies in the Bible. <laughs> Pastor Cliff, that's where in my devotional reading, I just I skip over those. When I go through Genesis, I go from chapter 4 to 6, and then I go from chapter 9 to 12, and then when I get to Chronicles, I just skip the first nine chapters, and when I get to Numbers, I skip the first six chapters, and... There's a lot of genealogies in the Bible. Well, you shouldn't be skipping genealogies. Second uh, Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture. All Scripture means every word is God breathed. Is all Scripture is God breathed? Literally, every Scripture comes from God's mind to us in the pages of the Bible. All Scripture is God-breathed, or some translations say all Scripture is inspired, including the genealogies, and are profitable for, good for. They will do you good. They serve a purpose, a divine purpose. Don't skip over the genealogies. Get help if you need to to explain them. But all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired, profitable for, basically helping you grow in your maturity as a Christian. Believe it or not, you can't grow to the fullness in your understanding about God and who Christ is, if you're not taking in the whole counsel of God, meaning the entire Bible, including the genealogies. So we're going to go to the genealogies, ask for God's help. Hopefully the Holy Spirit will help us mine some amazing, practical, life-changing truths in the genealogy, maybe things you've never even considered before. I'm reminded of a story of one of our members who got saved here. And to become a member, you have to give your testimony. And she gave her testimony. And she got saved at age 14 by hearing a sermon at a Baptist church, and the pastor was preaching on the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5. Incredible. And that was 55 years ago when she got saved, and she remembers it like yesterday. Genealogy. It's the Word of God. So let's go to God's Word together and see what Matthew has to say about the fact that who Jesus is. And I'm going to give you three points of who Jesus is. According to Scripture, uh, looking at Matthew there, just a little historical context. Matthew is the first book in your English Bible because historically it was the first book in the New Testament that was written of the 27 books of the Bible. Maybe James and Matthew were probably the first two. And Matthew was the first of the four Gospels, and that's why they are in the order that they are in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because that's the order they were written in. So uh, you open up with Matthew. 
Matthew was a Jew. He was one of the uh, disciples of Jesus, also an apostle. Uh, keep in mind, as Matthew is writing, probably around anywhere between 45 and 55 A.D., I'll just say Matthew's writing his gospel about 50 A.D. Jesus died and went back into heaven around 30 A.D. 20 years has now transpired. Matthew has grown up. Matthew's been an apostle. He's been a leader in the church in Jerusalem. He's seen the church explode from 120 people, actually 12 apostles to 120 people, then to become a megachurch in Jerusalem. But then he saw an onslaught of persecution from unbelievers. He's seen Christians brutalized for holding to their faith in Jerusalem. He's seen a lot in that 20 years. He probably saw some of his good friends die and be murdered for being believers, Christians. If Matthew stayed on in Jerusalem, which he probably did, he saw an, a rise in increasing resistance to Christianity and to the faith, primarily from Jews, because that's who dominated the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding environs. But he hung in there. He was preaching faithfully along with the 12 apostles about who Jesus is. They were preaching the gospel. They were preaching the gospel that Jesus gave them. They were preaching it consistently. They were preaching one message. It was good news that you can overcome your sin. That was the gospel. There wasn't any writing of New Testament books during this two-decade or 20-year period where they were preaching up until Matthew's first book. And there was this consistent gospel message being shared wherever the apostles went with this growing tide of resistance from hostile, unbelieving, hard-hearted Jews who should know better that Jesus was their Messiah. He was their king. And they hardened their hearts and they rejected that. So the... If we go back to when Jesus left the earth and ascended into heaven, we're reminded of the Gospels, particularly of John chapter 18, where Jesus is on trial. Caiaphas escorts him to the Roman governor, who's a puppet for Rome. His name is Pontius Pilate. The Sadducees, the Pharisees who hated Jesus, they took him to Pontius Pilate because they couldn't execute Jesus. They couldn't kill him. So they said, here, Pilate, render a verdict so we can execute this man. And Pilate said, what is his crime? And they said, would we bring him to you if he didn't have a crime? That's literally what they said. In other words, you say, show me the evidence. What were they saying? We don't have any. They were trying to intimidate Pilate. So they have a back and forth. And then finally, Pilate agrees to take this, uh, what's his name? Jesus? Jesus the Jew. Pilate is not Jewish. He doesn't know Jewish law. He doesn't know the affairs of their religion. Frankly, he's not interested. Because he told him, judge him yourself. He's a Jew, and it's over your Jewish laws, that Hebrew Old Testament stuff. But they insisted. They persisted. They were persuasive. He took Jesus. He cross-examined Jesus at least two or three times. In one of his cross-examinations, he asked Jesus point blank, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, in his classic God-man way, responded, not directly. Uh, he put it back on Pilate and said, is, uh, is that what you're asking or did somebody else tell you about me? So Pilate maybe got a little frustrated. But then immediately Jesus said three times, uh, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this realm. If my kingdom were of this world, then you would see my servants fight. So when Pilate said, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus didn't immediately say yes. But he said three times, my kingdom, my kingdom, my kingdom. So Jesus did acknowledge that, yes, I am a king. Uh, then Pilate went on with more questioning, examining, trying to exonerate himself. And then finally at the end, Pilate realizes, wow, I have to give this Jesus over to the people. They're crying for his blood. A crowd has amassed now outside the governor's mansion, screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And then finally, Pilate caves, and he says to the Jews, it's a Jewish audience. The Jewish leaders are sprinkled throughout the crowd, the mass hysterical mob. They're all Jewish, though. Many of these people, a week earlier, were waving hands at Jesus and palm branches saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, proclaiming him as the Messiah. 
many of those same people one week later crying for his blood. They are being manipulated and used by this small segment of Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees who have been trying to kill Jesus for years now. Crying for his blood. And then finally, Pilate, after beating Jesus, stripping him down, having him crowned with a crown of thorns, he presents them to the crowd as a judge. And he says, behold your king. To the Jews, behold your king. He was rendering a formal verdict. I have concluded that Jesus is a king. Not only that, he's your king. He's the king of the Jews. And then John tells us in John 18, the response of the crowd, they wouldn't accept that. And in their fury, they said, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Then Jesus was summarily executed, hung on a cross for six hours, died for the sin of the world as a substitute for sinners. As the God-man was buried three days later in fulfillment of scriptures, was raised from the dead, raised himself from the dead as the one and only Savior, spent 40 days with his disciples, ascended back into heaven where he came from in the first place to be once again with the Father and the Holy Spirit whom he had been with for all eternity as the glorified God-man, Jesus Christ, the King. The last resonating unified word of the Jewish people and the formal declaration and judgment that they made about Jesus the Messiah, we have no king, and he is not our king. Incredible. 20 years later, this is who Matthew is dealing with, a hostile, resistant audience of, for the most part, the majority, hard-hearted, unbelieving Jews, especially their leadership. 20 years later, now we go to the book of Matthew. Let's look at it. Matthew is a Jew. He is writing to the Jews. He's writing to the same Jewish audience, for the most part, that said, we have no king, crucify him. And now, Matthew, you know what? He's going to put it in writing as he's led by the Spirit of God. Well, here's that man, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, that you said was not a king, that you said was not your king, that you said deserved to die as a criminal, the worst kind of death imaginable, crucifixion. Here's the truth about that Jesus. Matthew chapter 1. The record, or verse 1, the book, the Biblos, of the genealogy of Jesus. Being English-speaking people, many of us not being familiar with the Old Testament, we read that and just pass right by. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, verse 2. Abraham, and then we just go on. If you are a Jew in Jesus' day, 2,000 years ago, probably in Jerusalem, you were born and raised in the synagogue where you taught the Hebrew scriptures. You may even had the book of Genesis memorized. You knew the key points of the book of Genesis. You knew its terminology. You weren't distracted by everything else in the world that we have today. So if you were an average, typical, informed, literate, literate Jewish Hebrew person, particularly if you are an educated Jew in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, especially if you're in the leadership level, whether you're a high priest, a Sadducee, a Pharisee, a scribe, when you see these words from Matthew, a fellow Jew, writing in some formal issued decree, the Biblos, the record of, the genealogy of Jesus, the first thing that pops into your head, I am convinced, is Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, because the terminology and the wording is identical to what is in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, especially if you're looking at a, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, which they all had and which they all used and which they all knew. Jesus even taught from the Septuagint. This verse is virtually identical. It's not stated this way in any other verse in the Old Testament, the way it is here. And what Genesis 5.1 says, virtually the same thing, except it's got different names. This is the record of the genealogy of Adam. And it goes on for many verses in chapter 5 of Genesis. And the conclusion is, what came from Adam's loins? What came from Adam the sinner? You conclude, death. 
Death, death, death. Just trace it through the chapter. Bad news. And the entire human race, every one of you, came from the loins of Adam, the sinner who was cursed, who died. And from him we've inherited that same curse. Fast forward to the days of Jesus, Jesus the Savior, the risen Lord, the only King, the King of the Jews, the King of the world. Matthew's now giving testimony and account of who this risen Savior is in his first line. is echoing, if not a direct allusion to Genesis 5.1. There was Adam who brought death. There's a second Adam. He brings life. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the risen one. He is the King. He's the promised Messiah. That's all in just the first few words of, Genesis, of Matthew chapter 1. If you're a Jew, very similar. John did the same thing in his gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning. Immediately, if you're a Jew, what are you thinking? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning. It's the only verse that begins that way. In the beginning, what? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God, what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you, you assign that to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the creator of Genesis 1, 1. And it goes on in verse 3 and in verse 10, saying that Jesus created the world just as Elohim did in Genesis 1.1. This is purposeful. So already Matthew is letting us know where he's going. He's giving specific identity to who Jesus is who came to fulfill prophecy of the Old Testament regarding the Messiah and his role. When it comes to Christmas and the birth of Christ, there are literally hundreds of prophecies that were fulfilled with the first coming of Jesus Christ. There's too many to exhaust. So this is a challenge, so I had to be selective, and let's just take a few. Focusing, zeroing in on what the Jews of that day who didn't believe of the true identity of Jesus Christ and what the majority of our world needs to know today. Who is Jesus Christ? Three points. Who is Jesus according to Matthew? Point number one, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. This is blatant in verse 1. If you are familiar with the Old Testament, if you are a Jew... Matthew is saying scandalous things. Matthew is saying blasphemous things if you are an unbelieving Jew. This is what the Pharisees accused Jesus of doing. Blasphemy, that's a sin against God. It's a sin against the first four of the Ten Commandments. And basically, it's either denigrating God or elevating a human to the level of God. It's idolatry. And for Jesus to claim to have equality with God the Father was blasphemy. It's the unpardonable sin. And anytime Jesus has assigned any kind of deity or equivalence with Yahweh or Elohim or God the Father, unbelievers, they considered that blasphemous. That is exactly what Matthew do, does. He's laying out who Jesus is more than a man. Jesus is king. Verse 1, here's the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Literally, it's Christ. Some of your English translations say Christ. The ESV says properly so Christ because that's the translation. That's the Greek word, Christos. What is Christos? It is synonymous with Messiah. Messiah is more of the, the Hebrew pronunciation. Meshiach, the anointed one. That's where it comes from. In the Old Testament, God set certain people, uh, set people aside for special purposes, and he did that formally at times through a public ceremony of anointing, anointing them with oil. And the three main categories that God would anoint or set aside for his people for special purposes would be he would anoint prophets, he would anoint priests, he would anoint kings, and he would anoint holy things. And so that anointing came to be a moniker for the name of the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one who would come in behalf of Yahweh and he would reign as Messiah or king. King is also a synonym for the word Christ or Messiah in many ways. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the King. And so that's what Matthew is clearly saying. Here's the record of Jesus, a Hebrew name, Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, Yeshua, God saves. Here's a record of Jesus who is the Messiah. He is the Christ. So that's the first recognition that Jesus is King. He is the anointed one of God. This is in fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2, where God predicted a thousand years before Jesus was born that he was going to send forth his Messiah on his behalf to rule over Israel and to rule over the world. And literally said he was going to anoint his one and put him on the throne. And there are many other prophecies predicted that Jesus or the Messiah would come to reign as a king. Messiah, verse 16, he's also called Messiah. Verse 17, he's called Messiah. And then in verse 18, he is called Jesus Christ, Jesus Christos, Jesus the Messiah. 
Christ is not his last name. It's a designation of his title. He is the anointed one, the anointed one of God, the ultimate anointed one, the king of kings, as a matter of fact, and that's exactly what he's called in the book of Revelation, put in his rightful place. So who is Jesus? According to Matthew, he is Jesus is king. Another indication that Matthew's letting us know that Jesus is the king, the rightful king. He's the king of Israel, as a matter of fact, the nation of Israel, because the Old Testament had many promises that the Messiah would come and he would rule over his people, the Jews. But in order to be the rightful king representing God, you had to be qualified, right? You want a job, you apply, you fill out your resume, you have qualifications. You want to be an elder, you have qualifications. All those positions require qualifications. The same was true for God's Messiah. He had to be qualified. One of the main qualifications, if you have your Bible, or you can just listen, I'm just going to read two verses. 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a thousand years before Christ. This is uh, in the days of King David. David. Just when you, when you talk about the Bible and you hear the name David, one of the first things you should think of is king. And you should think second king of Israel and good king of Israel in contrast to Saul, first bad king of Israel. David was not a perfect man. He was sinful, but God loved him and he loved God. God made him king. God gave him the throne. David literally reigned on a throne in Israel, in Jerusalem, eventually in a palace, using the law of Moses, empowered by the Spirit of God, and literally ruled as a shepherd and king on behalf of Yahweh himself. David was king. And now at the, year, the end of David's life, he's in his 70s now, he's about to die. Uh, David is looking at his palatial palace that took 13 years to build. And he's like, wow, God, you need a palace? You can't just be living in that tent all the time in that tabernacle. Here, let me build you a, a palace or a temple. And then God said, no, I don't want you to build me a temple. you got blood on your hands. I'll have somebody else build the temple. I'll have your son Solomon build the temple. You worry about other stuff. And that's 2 Samuel chapter 7. God's having a conversation with David just before his death. He said, you let your son Solomon build the temple, but I will give you a promise, David, a promise like never before, and it's called the Davidic covenant. This is new information. Already there's been a promise that a Messiah is coming, a Savior is coming. Details about him have been given. Up to this point, what are the details we know about this coming Savior or Messiah that would come from God? Well, we learned in Genesis 3.15 that he would be a man. He'll descend from the woman. He'll come for a purpose to crush the work of Satan and many other passages and truths we learn that he will come from the loins of Abraham from the book of Genesis. He'll come from the tribe of Judah according to the book of Genesis at the end. He'll be a king. And the Bible just keeps getting more and more specific as it goes through the Old Testament. And here it gets very specific. Not just a king, not just from Judah, but he will be a king from a certain family, from the loins of a certain person, and it had to be David. The Messiah had to be a descendant of David. Otherwise, he was not qualified to be king. That is laid down here in the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God said this, When your days are complete, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. This is referring to the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy because it is repeated in the New Testament telling us so. I will raise up for you, David, your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Then verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's called the Davidic covenant, given for the first time here, reiterated in several places in the rest of the Old Testament. Afterward, this was a priority then for the Jews. It was in their whole worldview now, incorporated on the authority of Scripture of everything they received from Moses. They had the Abrahamic covenant. They had the Noahic covenant. And now they have the Davidic covenant. Fast forward to the days of Jesus just before he's born. All of Jerusalem, all of Palestine, all of Galilee, there's a great expectation. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. And first and foremost, he must be a descendant of David. He must be born of David. He must come from David. And then Micah 5.2 gets even more specific. Not only must he be from David, we know where he must be born. He must be born in the town of David, and that is Bethlehem. So he must be 
a descendant of David. In other words, the coming Messiah must be a son of David. Well, the problem is Jesus was raised in Nazareth in Galilee, which is way north of Jerusalem, way north of Judah, and way north of Bethlehem. He was raised for 33 years pretty much in obscurity. He wasn't trained in the synagogues of the Sadducees and the Pharisees down in the headquarters of Jerusalem. They didn't even know who he was. When he burst on the scene at age 30, uh, the Jews, they didn't even know who he was. It's like, who is this guy? How does he speak with such authority? And, and where did he get his training from? We don't know this guy. We didn't approve him. So there was always this question about who Jesus was. And he's doing miracles, and he's healing people, he's loving people, he's uh, teaching the Old Testament like no one's ever taught it before. He's validating that he is who he says he is. He begins to equate himself with deity himself. He begins to say over and over again, he's one with the Father. He's raising eyebrows, he's raising ire because of such blasphemous assertions with respect to his identity. And all the while they're seeing, they can't deny his miracles, he's doing things no one's ever done before. But there's this rising hostility in the leadership. They're trying to shut him down for almost three entire years. After, who knows, maybe over a year and a half of doing miracles and preaching, and it's undeniable. He just walked on water. He just fed thousands in John chapter 7, and he's there teaching publicly at the temple at the feast time, and everybody is talking and grumbling and arguing, and they are having a debate about the identity of this man from Nazareth. And they're saying, who are you? We know where you come from. What did they mean by that? We know you weren't from Jerusalem. We know you weren't born in Bethlehem. We know you came from Nazareth. We know you came from an adulterous, dirty mother. They literally said that he was born a bastard child. Not only that, in chapter 7, they said, you have a demon. This is the crowds that he's teaching to that he is serving. And they're going back and forth, and the crowds are bantering, and it says, well, some said that he's the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. He's a good man. He's the prophet that Moses said God would send. We, we believe in him. Others are saying, no, he's not. He has a demon. He's a false teacher. He's a blasphemer. Others are saying, well, maybe he is the one he says he is. Maybe he is the Christ. Maybe he is the king. And then that stirred up another argument, and they have a debate. John chapter 7, verse 40 and following. And they're debating about, he cannot possibly be the Messiah because he is not a son of David. He is a Nazarene. We all know the Messiah must be, from the loins of David, a son of David, born in Bethlehem. That was still being debated after two years of Jesus' public ministry. They continue to grapple with his identity. Where did he come from? Matthew in 50 AD sets the record straight. Okay, Jews, you can't use this excuse anymore. It has been established by the testimony of two or three and a thousand witnesses of who Jesus is. He is qualified. He fulfills the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, thus fulfilling Micah chapter 5 verse 2. He came from the loins of David as Matthew is about to establish, thus fulfilling 2 Samuel chapter 7. He is the qualified king. That's why this phrase is so important that Matthew lays out here in verse 1. That who is Jesus? Well, he's the Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the promised one, but he is the son of David. That means he is qualified to be king. The son of David, verse 1. Then again, verse 6. Jesse, who was he? He was the father of David the king. There it is again. David, he's establishing David is king. David is the rightful king. There is no other legitimate king. Herod is a false king. Herod is a pseudo king. Herod is not a qualified king. Jesus is, you killed him. He comes from David, David the king. Verse 6, David is mentioned two times. Goes through his genealogy, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David, there it is, David the king again, and from David to the deportation. Verse 20. He makes reference to Joseph's adoptive father, or uh, Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, and he even refers to Joseph as the son of David. Joseph was a son of David. Joseph was in the bloodline of David the king, all the way directly back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Joseph adopted Jesus. Jesus was not the blood son of Joseph. But Jesus was the right, had the right to, to rule as king because he got that through the legal right of his father, Joseph, who adopted him. And that's why 
Matthew goes to uh, pains in verse 20 to say that Joseph is the son of David as well. And that's why Jesus is rightfully called the son of David. So just as you go a uh, high view through this genealogy and you see these, these phrases, Jesus the Christ, he is the king, he is the Messiah, he is the anointed one. And then you see these references of David where he's directly related. He comes from the loins of David. He is the rightful king. He is a son of David indeed. One more thing regarding Jesus as the king. So the fact that he's of David means he's the king of Israel. So Jesus will rule over Israel. That was the promise. If you read 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises, I'm going to raise up a descendant and he will be the king. He'll rule on your throne, David. David sat on a literal throne. Did Jesus in 33 years ever sit on a literal throne? You said no. So is God lying? No. So do we spiritualize and allegorize that passage? No. It was literal in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Will it be literal when it's fulfilled? Yes. So Jesus didn't sit literally on David's throne, but will he someday? Yes. When is that? In the future. How do you know? Because it's in the Bible. Where? All over the place. Can you be more specific? Yes. The book of Revelation. Jesus the king is coming again. By the way, he is coming. He's on the way. He is returning. And he comes as the king of kings and lord of lords. And literally, he comes down from heaven and he lands on earth. Revelation 5.10, on the earth, on the earth. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer of every Christian. Jesus Christ is coming literally to rule on the earth. Where will that throne, literal throne be located? In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. Is it there now? No. Will it be in the future? Yes. Why? Because God said so. That's how world history ends. Actually, that's how world history continues and begins. Jesus comes literally reigning on a throne from Jerusalem. That's the headquarters. And he fulfills the promise. And he will rule over the nation of Israel. He will unite the nation of Israel. He will be literally the king of the Jews. Is he king now? Yes but not completely and fully in all of its physical manifestations. Is he in total sovereign control right now? Yep. Over everything? Absolutely. But there will be an outward manifestation of that rule in the future. It is coming in fulfillment of Scripture. The, script, the Old Testament Scriptures have to be fulfilled in detail, and they will be. And not only is Jesus king of Israel, Jesus is king of the whole world. Where do you get that from? Go back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Here's the record of the genealogy of Jesus as opposed to Adam, the sinner. This coming Jesus will be Messiah. He will be king. He's the anointed one of God. He will rule over the nations just like Psalm 2 says. Not only that, he is qualified in light of the fact that he comes from the loin of David, fulfilling the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel chapter 7 and Psalm 89 and many other passages. He is the rightful king. Not only is he a son of David, he is the son of Abraham. He is the son. What does that mean? That means he's not only the king of Israel, he is the king of the world. He is the king of the world. Abraham's name is mentioned two, three times, down to verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. Matthew, his genealogy here, he records, he starts from Abraham, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Or literally, Abraham begat Isaac. That doesn't mean he gave birth to Literally, it means he is the ancestor of, the originator of, the progenitor of. He starts with Abraham, and he goes all the way down till he gets to Joseph, who was married to Mary, in verse 16, who gave birth to Jesus. So this genealogy in Matthew, he traces Abraham all the way down to Jesus. What is he doing? Well, as a Jew, he's reminding the Jews... The first and greatest Jew there ever was was Abraham. We learn that in Genesis chapter 12. For the first 11 chapters of Genesis, God is dealing with the world. He's dealing with the nations. And then he focuses in with the doctrine of election. And he picks out this pathetic, lowly, undeserving 75-year-old man of a sinner who's an idol worshiper and doesn't deserve anything like neither of us do and shed his love and grace upon Abraham, gave him a promise... Saved him after he gave him the promise. That's huge. 
And God has kept that promise. Basically, what was the promise? Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Abraham, I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to make you a great leader. Not only will great people come from you and kings come from you, but nations shall come from your loins. Nations shall come from your loins. And you will be a blessing to the nations of the earth. You will be a blessing to the world. You will be a blessing to the nations. That's a key word right there because in the Septuagint, the Greek Septuagint in the Old Testament, that's the same word used in the Great Commission that Jesus the King said in Matthew 28 just before he left this earth. He told his disciples, go and make disciples uh, just in Jerusalem to the Jews because we're all about this Jewish cul-de-sac thing. No. Go and make disciples of the nations. That's what God told Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, 2,000 years before Jesus was born, that the Messiah would do. He would come from the loins of Abraham. He would be a king. He would be a king of David. He would be a Jewish king. He would be a king to Israel, but he would also be the king of the world. And that's what Matthew is getting at here as well. He's not just a king of the Jews. He's the king of the world. He's the king of the nations, of anyone who would trust in him and believe in him. So Matthew begins his gospel by emphasizing the reach of God's love to the nations every corner of the earth. And that's how Matthew ends his gospel in Matthew 28. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of Gentiles who believe, of pagans who are unbelieving and undeserving but repent before Jesus. So Jesus is king. There's so much more I could say about that, but uh, let's go on to point number two, and that Jesus is the Savior. This is self-explanatory. Follow along. I'm going to skip over verses 1 through 17. By the way, if you compare Matthew's genealogy, verses 1 to 17, and put that side by side with Luke's genealogy in Luke chapter 3, there are some differences. They're beautiful. They complement one another perfectly. And I believe that Matthew is giving us Joseph's line, that Jesus is legally qualified to be king. And many argue that Luke is giving us Mary's bloodline. And she goes back to King David as well. So Jesus is qualified by virtue of the blood he got from Mary. He was born of Mary. He is also legally qualified from his father, Joseph, who adopted him as Joseph goes back to David as well. So they teach important things. But now let's look. So we skip over the genealogy, and then he concludes, okay, here are... Here is Jesus. He comes from Mary. He was born of Mary. Verse 16 is key. Jacob begat Joseph. And the way he's been going for names, all these names, he says the, the, the father begat the son, the father begat the son, the father begat the son. And then he gets to verse 16 and says the father begat Joseph. And then you would think he would say Joseph begat Jesus, but he couldn't say that. Because Joseph didn't beget Jesus. Jesus didn't come from the loins of Joseph. Jesus was not blood-related to Joseph. Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. That is the point. And Matthew's sharing that with people, and people hearing this for the first time are like, what? So if Joseph wasn't Jesus' real father, biological father, blood father, then who was Jesus' real human father. Answer, didn't have one. The only person in human history that did not have a human father, save Adam and Eve. It was a miracle. It's called the virgin birth. And that's what God did, is he used the Holy Spirit, came down and fertilized somehow supernaturally, miraculously, inexplicably, one of Mary's eggs, just like that. And for nine months, Jesus grew in her womb. And the eternal God man, or Christ, Son of God of the universe, came down from heaven, the glories of heaven that he, to the earth that he created. And he took up residence in Mary's womb for nine months and he developed. And he became the God man inside of Mary's womb. He had no biological father. It is called the virgin birth. It is an absolutely essential doctrine to Christianity. It's taught in Matthew chapter 1 clearly, it's taught in Luke chapter 1. Uh, it's taught in the Old Testament as well. And you can't be a Christian and deny the virgin birth, which is a different question than can you be a Christian and ignorant of the virgin birth? Probably. Can you be a Christian and categorically, willingly, knowingly, when confronted with Scripture, deny the virgin birth? Absolutely not, because it's the very identity of who Jesus is. Being a Christian is about knowing Jesus for who he is. 
He is the God-man. He is like no other. He's 100% man. He is 100% God. That is the Savior. If you don't believe in Jesus, who is God, you're believing in the wrong Jesus. He can't be your Savior. If He's not God, He can't save you. If He's God, He can't judge. He is the God-man. He came into this world supernaturally. He left this world supernaturally like no other, and He will come again to this world like no one ever has. So that's the virgin birth. Let's read it. Verse 18. So Matthew has to explain himself. Yeah, he just said basically that Jesus has no biological father. He only has a mother. And readers might be saying, well, how in the world did that happen? Glad you asked. Verse 18. Now the birth, or literally the Greek word there is Genesis, literally. Genesis. Now the Genesis of Jesus Christ, or the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed or engaged to Joseph, before they came together, before they got formally married, before they had any sexual intimacy whatsoever. Mary is still a virgin, but they were engaged together. Before they came together in union, Mary was already to be found with child. She was pregnant before she got married. She was pregnant before she had intimacy with a man. How does that happen? Only by a miracle. And Matthew tells us how that happened. How did she become pregnant apart from a human man? Well, she became pregnant or with child by the Holy Spirit. Luke 135 tells us even more. It was a miracle. The God-man from all eternity came down and took up residence in Mary's womb through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Mary is now pregnant. She's developing. She's starting to show. She's starting to grow. She can't hide it anymore. Neighbors are whispering, wait a minute, they're not married yet. She's pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. She's impure. She's a compromiser, her and Joseph. They're dirty. They haven't kept their vows of holiness to God. That's what was going on. By the way, before she got pregnant, the angel told Mary it was going to happen. The angel didn't tell uh, Joseph until after it did happen. And apparently, Mary didn't tell Joseph. And that's why there's verse 19. Joseph, her husband meaning he was betrothed to her, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her. What does that mean? Publicly defame her and say, yep, she's pregnant. We haven't been married yet. Uh, I haven't known her, so she cheated on me. She committed adultery. She was unfaithful. According to the Mosaic law, she needs to be exposed. Her name needs to be publicized. She needs to be shamed, cast out, maybe even stoned to death. That was an option. But Joseph wasn't going to do that because he knew the character of Mary. She's a woman of God. She's a woman of faith. She wouldn't do this. What do I do? I can't shame her. So he has good intentions. He planned to send her away secretly and not go on with the marriage. Verse 20, but when he had considered this, behold, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. There it is. Your line has the right to reign as King, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It was a miracle of God. Joseph, Joseph is a man of great faith because he believed it on the spot, as far as we know. Remember when Zacharias was in the temple and God spoke to him and he didn't believe and God said, okay, fine, you can't talk for the next 60 days. Take that. Apparently, Joseph believed. Verse 20 tells you a lot about their faith because Mary believed immediately as well. Her reaction was incredible in Luke chapter 1. Um, verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, God saves. Jesus is Savior. Who is Jesus? He's the Savior because his name means Savior. That's what Jesus means. Put that in your Christmas letter. Merry Christmas. It's about the birth of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus mean? Thank you for asking. God saves. Jesus is Savior. You should call his name Jesus because he will fulfill that role. For he will save his people from their sins. That's Psalm 130, verse 8. That comes right out of the Old Testament. The Pharisees were right. They said only God can forgive sin. Who can forgive sin but God and God alone? That was true. And they're saying, your child is going to forgive sin. He is the God-man. Verse 22, And now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Christ. Chapter 7, verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, become pregnant, and she shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel translated literally means God with us. The Messiah will be born. He'll be born of a virgin. He will have no biological father. 
His name will be Jesus. He will save his people from his sin. His title will be Emmanuel, God with Jesus. Nobody ever called Jesus Emmanuel. That's a title. That's who he is. That's his title. He is literally God among us, God in our midst. That's what Emmanuel means. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and he did exactly as the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary as his wife. There's that faith. But he kept her, this is key, he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus, to a son. And then they called his name Jesus. She, he, he took her in. He didn't care what everybody thought. He knew the truth. He stood confident in the truth despite all the gossip around him that never went away, by the way, because he chose to believe God. And he kept her pure. He kept her a virgin until she gave birth to to a son. And then afterwards, Joseph and Mary had a normal marriage relationship, and they gave birth to several children who were the half-brothers and half-sisters of Jesus, the Messiah. So clearly, Jesus is the Savior. He came for one purpose. That was to save sinners from their sin. I'll close with this. Go back to that genealogy, all those names. Some of these names, we don't even know who they are. Some of these names, especially 12 through 16 in chapter 1, aren't even in the Old Testament. We just assume Matthew had the truth. He had the records. He was led by the Spirit of God. He got it right. He didn't make any mistakes. But the names we do know stand out. If you know your Old Testament, go to Genesis chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 1, 1 and following, and if you just start looking at some of those names, you'll notice one thing. Every name listed in here that is in the genealogy of Jesus, that belongs to the family of Jesus, every one of them is a pathetic, wicked, evil, lost sinner until they receive the grace of God. Some of them didn't. That's Jesus' genealogy. That is his heritage. That's where he came from. He came to save his people from their sins. Every one of them. We could just start picking on them. There's verse 7. Solomon, was he a believer? He was, but he was, he was a horrible compromiser. He was an idol worshiper. He chased money and everything else. He, he was sexually immoral. But God loved him and he knew God. He got saved by God. Solomon. Boy, if God can save Solomon, God can save you. God can save me. Uh, there are five women listed in this genealogy. You know what's weird about that is women typically aren't mentioned in Jewish genealogies. Genesis chapter 5 is just all men. Well, what about the ladies? Why are you leaving the women out all the time? This, this is very rare. And here's Matthew listing all these women. And boy, they're, they're a compromised group of women. The first one is verse 3, Tamar. You know who that was? That was the daughter-in-law of uh, Judah, she was an angry, bitter woman. She was into retaliation. She deceived her father-in-law and a lot of other people. She committed incest. It was grotesque. Tamar, that's not a good name. She's in the genealogy of Jesus, the blessed Savior. Uh, there is Rahab in the list. Who was Rahab? She was, she's called Rahab the harlot. Rahab, Rahab the prostitute. Rahab, the, the dirty, sexual, immoral one, the idol worshiper. That was Rahab. You got a dirty, sexual, immoral past? Well, if God can save Rahab, and he did, God can save you. That's the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the amazing Savior. Ruth, verse 5, another woman. Who is she? A Moabitess. Deuteronomy says, cursed are the Moabites. Cursed are the Moabites. They can't become Jews. They can't join the theocracy of Israel. They can't be among our people. Cursed be the Moabites. They're a cursed people. Yet God in His grace makes an exception, and He saves Ruth. Ruth chapter 3, verse 11. Boaz, the Jew, makes an amazing statement. He says, you know what, Ruth? Um, you have an amazing reputation already being a foreigner in our town. This is the Living McManus translation. Um, your reputation goes before you, and, and everybody just has great respect for you. And, and Boaz called her a virtuous woman, a virtuous... That is the only time that phrase is used in the Bible. There's the virtuous wife, but th this is the virtuous woman. The New English, or the New American Standard calls it a, a woman of excellence. You are a woman. She was just... She loved God. Where'd she get that? She got that from Naomi, her mother-in-law. She was raised a pagan and idol worshiper. She saw Naomi, fell in love with her mother-in-law, and she wanted the God that Naomi worshipped. I want that God. I want that truth. God saved Ruth, the accursed, idol-worshipping pagan. 
because of the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a gift. So I know we're just scratching the surface, but just be reminded, Jesus is king. He's king of the world. He's coming again. Jesus is Savior. He's Savior of the world. He's Savior of anybody who will recognize that they are sinful and they know that, Jesus, you're the only one that can save me. You're the only one that can forgive me of my sin. I cry out to you. I repent. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for absorbing the Father's wrath on the cross for me. Thank you for rising again from the dead to overcome sin for me. Thank you for being the great high priest in heaven who intercedes for me. Jesus, save me. And he will. You can't save yourself. And then the third one that we saw in Emmanuel, Jesus is God. If Jesus wasn't God, he couldn't be a savior. If Jesus wasn't God, we couldn't worship him. If Jesus wasn't God, he wouldn't have the right to be the judge of every soul. But he is the judge of every soul. He's coming soon, and he will judge every person. If you know Jesus Christ by grace through faith, you're adopted into his family. If you reject him, he will cast you aside for all eternity. And in a real sense, the choice is yours. Let's go to the Father and thank him for who Jesus is. Father, we do thank you for today and the Christmas season, the opportunity to be reminded of who Jesus is, your blessed Son, the King of the universe, the Savior of the world and the only Savior, the God-man, the one that we can worship and pray to, the coming judge. God, I pray that you would use these truths on anybody listening that up to this date didn't know Jesus Christ personally for whatever reason, out of ignorance, haven't heard the message, a hardened heart, chasing false gods, distractions from the world. God, we know that your gospel and your Holy Spirit can cut through and penetrate all of that and that they would soften their heart, come to you, embrace you as Savior, be changed forever, the greatest Christmas present imaginable. And we thank you. We commit all these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.